Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Sonarworks. Sonarworks is on a mission to ensure everybody hears music the way it was meant to be, across all devices. Visit sonarworks.com for more info. And now your host, A.L. Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. I am A.L. Levy, and I just want to tell you that this show is brought to you by URM Academy the world's best education for rock and metal producers. Every month on Nail the Mix, we bring you one of the world's best producers to mix a song from scratch from artists like Diamond God, Meshuggah, Periphery, A Day to Remember, Bring Me the Horizon, Opeth, many, many more. And we give you the raw multi-tracks so you can mix along. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of bite-sized mixing tutorials, and Portfolio Builder, which are pro-quality multi-tracks that are cleared for use in your portfolio. You can find out more at nailthemix.com. Before we get into the show, I want to tell you about a brand new product we just launched, the Complete Beginner's Guide to Recording Rock and Metal. It's a short two-hour course hosted by Ryan Fluff Bruce, where he walks you through every single step of the process for recording a complete song from scratch in a simple home studio. If you've been thinking about getting into recording, but you weren't sure where to start, this is for you. He gives you a list of exactly which gear that we suggest you get, shows you how to set it all up, then gives you a step-by-step guide to record a guitar, bass, and vocals, and programming MIDI drums. Everything you need to record an awesome, high-quality demo with no more than a few hundred dollars worth of gear. And just to make sure you have absolutely everything you need, the course includes copies of Toneforge Menace and Gain Reduction by Joey Sturgis Tones and a virtual drum plugin from Drumforge. That's over $200 in software included with the course. So it's pretty much a no-brainer. If that sounds cool to you, you can get instant access to the course and all the included plugins at recordingmetalguide.com. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine podcast. My name is A.L. Levy, and today I have a guest that I am super excited about because, like I just told him, I'm getting sick of talking about microphones, and if you guys want me to do another 250 episodes, uh, I'm going to have to start getting a guest that I'm very personally interested in talking to. Not that there's anything wrong with any of our previous guests, but try doing 250 episodes on um, just production, and you'll be in my shoes. <laughs> Today I've got Professor William Chaplin, who is actually a professor of astrophysics at the School of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Birmingham, England. He's inspired by the space program and the U.S. space shuttle launches as a kid. Um, he pursued his passion to unravel the secrets of the universe, signing him a Ph.D., as well as involvement with several NASA missions, including the really well-known Kepler mission. Uh, and with over 150 papers under his belt and organizing the activity of nearly 170 scientists in various programs, as well as an author, Bill's one of the leading minds in the fields of helioseismology, which he covers in brilliant detail in his book, The Music of the Sun, The Story of Helioseismology. I'm going to stop talking. William, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. I'm just going to get right into it. What drove you to study sound in relation to objects in space? Yeah, so this... Uh, was a result of what the uh, research group uh, that I now lead in in Birmingham 
the, the work that they were actually doing, um, going all the way back to the actually late 1960s and early 1970s. The, the chap who actually led the group then, uh, who's sadly no longer with us, but Professor George Isaac, he was had been uh, motivated and inspired by the challenge of finding life elsewhere in the universe. And that begins, or at the time began, with actually finding planets beyond our solar system. So at the time, the only planets uh, that were known were the planets in our solar system that are orbiting the sun. Of course, we're on one of those planets, the Earth. And uh, in George's work, he actually developed an instrument that he realized could potentially be capable of discovering planets um, orbiting other stars. But one of the things that he was very unsure about is whether the uh, noise, intrinsic noise from the star, might prevent his instrument from being sensitive enough uh, to actually discover signatures of the planets. So basically, what we would call a noise floor in recording. It sounds like the noise floor is too great on a star. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, so he thought, okay, the sorts of stars we're going to be interested in finding planets around if we want to find life are probably going to be stars like the sun. So he thought, I'll try out the instrument on the sun, and that way we'll be able to get a proper handle on what the noise levels might be. And so he and his colleagues um, started doing this actually on a with an instrument that was on the roof of one of the buildings here in Birmingham. And they started doing this in the, the very early 1970s. And in the process of doing this, they found that the data they collected um, seemed to show evidence for a uh, persistent periodic signal. And they spent a lot of time scratching their heads over what this might be. Um, and it took all the way to the, I guess, the mid-late 1970s for them to realize that the, the signature they were seeing um, was actually a, a signature of global resonances of the entire sun, by which I mean um, signatures that were causing the sun to oscillate. And those uh, signatures or signals were actually um, caused by sound waves trapped inside the sun. So they'd actually discovered that the entire sun was resonating just like a, a musical instrument. And that opened up a whole new way of actually studying the interior of the sun that we can get to and talk about. And it subsequently as well opened up as well the possibility to do the same thing as well on, on other stars. So I guess I, I was here in Birmingham doing my PhD, well, thinking about doing a PhD in the uh, beginning of the 1990s. And um, so I thought, this sounds quite interesting. So both, you know, studying stars in this way, but also as well, the, the search for life, beginning with the search for planets around other stars. And that's sort of the um, uh, the story of how I got involved in the work I'm in. So the audio is more a means to an end for you? Yes, it is. It is. So the, the, just the fact that, you know, we're very lucky that stars do this, that they, they make sound... Uh, naturally in their interiors. Um, the sound gets trapped in the body of the star. So even though a star is a big 
ball of hot ionized gas. It doesn't have solid edges like the, you know, the edges of a musical instrument. So you think of an, I don't know, an oboe or a clarinet. You've got the body of the, the instrument there that's actually acting as a cavity to trap the sound uh, that's in the body of the instrument. And it's that sound that makes the instrument resonate and you hear it play, then it crisp, clean overtones or harmonics of the instrument. So in the case of a star, the star makes the sound naturally in its outermost layers. That sound is trapped. The, the, the star acts as a natural cavity to trap the sound. And as a result, it, it resonates just like a, an oboe or a, or a clarinet. Now, we can't literally listen to the star. So that sound that's trapped inside there making it resonate um, doesn't actually escape. And anyway, if it did, it would um, then pass into the, the vacuum of space. So um, sound doesn't travel through a vacuum. But because a star is a big ball of gas, what happens is those trap waves make the star breathe in and out. And what that does in turn is it makes the star brighter as it breathes in and darker as it breathes out. So instead of actually listening to a musical instrument and recording the sounds that are made and getting, you know, um, recording all the tones and harmonics of the instrument, here what we do is we can measure, for example, the change in the brightness of the star, but all that information on the sound waves is actually coded then into the changes in the light from the star. And that's how we can, if you like, get a window on the, the sound waves inside the star and, and hence what a star looks like inside as well. Do you have any sort of idea at all what kind of amplitude these waveforms have or just how powerful these sounds would be to us? So yeah, so I mean, the amount of energy that's tied up in them is, you know, hugely powerful. Um, so you know, the kind of thing if you sort of work out the energy levels involved and imagine that you could, you know, hear the equivalent of something like that. It's the kind of you know energy levels that would um, quite happily kill <laughs> kill a human for sure. That's what I was wondering. Yeah, yeah. So that you know, huge amount of energy tied up in that, but that they actually paradoxically that they're very, very hard to detect because um, even though there's a huge amount of energy tied up in the sound waves, and that's because these sound waves propagate through the, in, you know, uh, in the sun, some of the sound waves um, traverse the entirety of the inside of the star. So, you know, stars are big things. The sun from one edge to another is about, you know, one and a half million kilometers across, something like that. So there's a huge amount of, of energy there, but actually when you look at the the amount by which the sun is actually breathing in and out. So if you think, you know, how much bigger or smaller just does the sun become as it breathes in and out, its size changes by these modes, if you like, or resonances that we observe that affect the entire sun. They make the star breathe in and out by maybe only a few tens of meters, you know, in a more than a million kilometers. So they're actually on a global scale. They're quite small changes and quite hard to detect. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, now with clever instrumentation, we can we can detect these very, very small changes and then use the data to uncover the star's hidden secrets. You said tens of meters? Yeah, so really tiny. And on a yeah. scale, time scale of a few minutes, so, you know, the sun's going from small to large to small again, you know, with, with this difference in size being a few tens of meters, 
that that time scale is it takes a, uh, the order of a, of a few minutes, about five minutes to do that. So um, so that the frequencies are very low, you know, in, inaudible, you know, down at this in the sort of millihertz um, regime. Mm-hmm. So the fact that you can even detect it at all uh, on an object that far away or something that small is kind of mind blowing. Yeah, it's really, you know, uh, one other thing as well, na- nature's been very kind to us in that stars do show these these signals as well in that um, there is, normally when we study stars, we observe the light that we receive from them before we realize that that light had all this information on the sound trapped inside. Um, we would use the light from the star to tell us something about the star, but paradoxically, we could only then really get direct information on what's happening at the surface of the star from where the light is emitted. So one was in a position of having to infer what the, you know, what, what the entire inside of a star looks like just from um, learning what its surface looks like. So it's almost like, you know, the, the tail wagging the dog thing of trying to figure out what does the rest of the dog look like if you only have information on the tail. So now we actually have a way, you know, thanks to these observations, to really see what stars actually look like inside. And um, that's really revolutionized our ability to, you know, be able to study study stars, including our own star, the sun. I guess the most logical next question is, uh, you know, without asking you something that would take 12 hours to explain, <laughs> how do you go about, um, I guess, I guess in your mind, accurately mapping out or figuring out what is on the inside of something that's, again, that far away and yeah. that no one's ever been to? So we can, to sort of figure out how, how do we use these resonances, we can think of a few sort of everyday analogies. So, one that um, I often talk about is the uh, you think about the different tones or the pitch of the tones that are produced by musical instruments of different sizes. So let's suppose that I had someone with me here in my office, um, or two people, one person who was playing a little tiny piccolo trumpet, the other person was playing a big tuba. You would know from hearing the two instruments which player was playing the little piccolo trumpet because that plays at much higher pitch tones, mm-hmm. and who was playing the tuba, which produces things at much you know lower tones. So the, the pitch there of the resonances is telling you something about the size of the instrument. Also, of course, its structure—you know, what it, its structure, what what shape it has, and everything like that. And so, broadly speaking, by measuring the the pitch of the resonances of a star. So here, instead of pitch, because we're not literally listening to the star, remember, we're measuring how quickly it's breathing in and out. So there, for a a high pitch of a musical instrument, think of a star that's breathing in and out, pulsating very quickly. Um, For much lower pitch tones of the tuba, the equivalent of that for a star is a star that pulses or breathes in and out much more slowly. So just in the same way that with a musical instrument, you know, a small piccolo trumpet um, plays at higher pitch. Um, so a smaller star will tend to have resonances that are higher pitched or which where the star breathes in and out much more quickly. So that's one example of how, you know, using the information, we can say something about the, the fundamental properties of a star, in this case, how big it is. 
Then in terms of looking inside, so another analogy of breathing in um, helium from a party balloon. So um, I, don't know, I don't know if you've ever done that yourself, but I'm sure you've you know, <laughs> of course. heard other people do it. And then your, your voice goes very, very squeaky. Not recently, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea here, right, is that you are, your, your larynx, your voice box, that's a resonator. And it resonates because it's got gas in there, which is usually air. You flush out the air and have helium in there. Helium's lighter than air. And the sound waves move faster through helium than they do through air, and that changes the, the pitch of your voice. So the stuff that you have inside a, you know, your larynx or inside a musical instrument that's providing the medium through which the sound, sound waves can travel and propagate, the nature of that gas, whatever that medium is, affects as well the sound waves and hence the, the, the pitch of the tones that will be produced by the instrument. And the same is true of stars. So stars are a mixture of gas, predominantly hydrogen gas and helium gas, with a smattering of other gases that are heavier than that. And as a star ages, um, star like the sun, um, the, the ticking heartbeat of the star is in its core, where there are nuclear reactions that power the star, and they, in the process of doing that, convert hydrogen gas into helium gas. Now, helium is heavier than hydrogen. And what that does, that process of the star aging and turning some of its hydrogen into helium, that changes the way that the sound waves propagate through the star and it changes then the pitch of the resonances of the star as well. So just in the same way that, you know, um, someone, you know, breathing in helium their voice going squeaky you know you could if you were able to measure how much squeakier their voice got you could you'd be able to say yes that's definitely because it's helium gas and not something else that you've used there to flush out the air you can kind of do the same thing with a star as it ages the pitch or the the, the pitch of the tones gets higher essentially and so we can use that as well to say something about the structure of the star but also as well how how old the star is as well. So sort of two everyday examples of how we use our data on other stars to say something about what they really look like inside. Sounds like there's some very interesting parallels between, I guess, the microcosm of our life down here and how sound works um, out there. Are you, so are you finding that as well when you study other stars and other galaxies? Yeah, so the you know, our, our ability to be able to do use sound as a tool to study stars is really built on, you know, an understanding of the basic fundamentals and the basic physics that's involved in, you know, um, how sound propagates, you know, and understanding a lot of what we do, I guess, in terms of thinking about how we interpret and use the sound that's trapped in stars it's very similar to, you know, the basic physical principles that one uses to understand resonances and tones of musical instruments. And of course, the physical conditions in a star are very, very diff different, of course, to the conditions in an instrument that someone's holding when, you know, sitting in a room playing in an orchestra. But it's still all, you know, basic physics. 
and combining that you know that basic understanding of sound with our understanding of the you know what's happening in the environment of a star where you know at the surface of a star the temperature is about 6000 degrees at the center of a star like the sun the temperature is millions of of degrees um so very you know quite extreme physical conditions but because we have the basic foundations of understanding the physics of sound um we can then use our observations of the effects of these sound waves to then say something about what stars look like look like inside so you know it's all founded on good good fundamental physics um uh that we understand a lot about just out of curiosity um under extreme conditions like that do you know at all of and I, and I don't know even what I totally mean, but under those types of extreme conditions, does the nature of sound change at all? Or in the way that it would, I don't know how to, what the right word is, come across? Does anything about it change from how we understand sound? I think in terms of the, the way that we would use information on the sound that we have inside stars, the way we might use it, you know, to understand the environment around us. I think it's still basically the same physics. I mean, there are some, you know, extreme examples. I don't know, something like a um, getting us, you know, you can have a sonic boom that's produced by a, an aircraft that goes supersonic in the Earth's atmosphere. And we can get similar kinds of, you know, energetic events and phenomena um, that can take place within stars as well. Um, due to certain events taking place, but again, it's the you know it's all founded on the same sort of fundamental physics. And as I said, you know some of the energy levels involved. If you think about the total energy bound up in the sound that's contained in the in a star, it's hugely, hugely, vastly bigger than the energy that you you know have tied up in someone playing a musical instrument. But again, it's the same fundamentals, the same principles, and so you know we're. We're on a firm footing in terms of, you know, being able to interpret what we see and um, use that to interpret what we're seeing in terms of what a star looks like inside. So being that you feel like you're on a firm footing and it pretty much seems to work the same way almost everywhere, does that give you hope for the original purpose of the mission? It does. I mean, we, we've it really has allowed us these observations for the first time to compare the models that we have of the inside of what we think the what we think the inside of the sun looks like and what we think the insides of the stars look like it's provided us with the first opportunity to make a real proper comparison of those predictions with really what we see and that might seem like a, I mean, there's obviously the, the obvious question of, yeah, fine, but, but so what? And I guess there are two ways, you know, two, two sort of ways to think about this of why it's so important. There's one facet of this which is very important to us here on Earth, and that's, of course, the fact that without the sun being there, we wouldn't be here. And also as well, the, the sun affects us as well through its changing outputs and emissions, something called space weather that we can we can talk about. And all of those, the, the space weather and the emissions that the sun produces, um, they all have their origins in 
things that happen inside the sun. So if we want to get a better handle on what's happening there and how the sun is actually affecting us, then we need to be able to look inside the sun and that we can do. And then there's the sort of the general, more wider picture of, you know, the sun is but one star in our galaxy. Stars are building blocks of the galaxy, but they, they also provide safe harbors for planets and planets, that, some of which can potentially support life. So as well, if, you know, the, the quest to find life elsewhere in the universe, um, finding life outside our solar system begins with the search for planets around stars, of which many thousands have now been found. But it's also crucial as well to be able to understand the nature of the stars around which the planets are found, because that determines, you know, whether these, in part, whether these, in large part, whether or not the planets might be habitable, um, the impact that the stars have on those planets and so forth. So, you know, there's this sort of wider, bigger picture um, question of, you know, are we alone in the universe? How common is life out there? How typical is our own solar system and our own planet, the Earth? And, that, you know, a, a really important key to unlocking those questions is being able to understand the life cycles of stars um, and also to be able to measure specifically the properties of stars around which planets have been discovered that we think might perhaps be capable of, of harboring life. So it's, you know, our, our, the, the, the telescopes that we now have that can make these observations, satellites and telescopes, are now providing us with the data to be able to, to do this and unlock, if I can lock the secrets of the previously unhidden uh, hidden secrets of the stars. If you had to guess, life or no life, what do you think? Oh, I think definitely life. I think it would be a very curious, very curious if we were, you know, unique and alone. And you know, I think there's every chance that, you know, maybe perhaps within my lifetime, but certainly the, within the lifetime of people that are alive now, that we will find signatures of life elsewhere in the universe. Um, certainly that the key, of course, to being able to do that is to have the technology and the ability to make observations which could find what we call biosignatures. So, um, um, observable markers that we can find when we when we observe planets orbiting other stars that are maybe telltale indicators or signs of the of the possible presence of life. So, irrespective of whether or not one believes that we will or won't find those signatures, it is true to say that we will be in a position to be able to search for and find those signatures certainly within my lifetime, I think, so, um, which is quite, a, quite an exciting thought. That must be what keeps everyone going. I think it is. I mean, you know, it's quite um, sobering to think that until the 1990s, the only planets that we knew were the planets that are in our solar system, including the Earth, the planets that orbit the sun. And so prior to that, um, you think of all of the, you know, the the billions of stars in the galaxy, uh, you know, the millions of stars that you can see in the night sky at night, that prior to the 1990s, we just didn't know where there are really planets orbiting stars in the night sky, how common are planets. And thanks to a, you know, a whole new generation of, of 
observations made by ground-based telescopes and as well observations from satellites too. We now know, having discovered literally thousands of planets orbiting other stars in our galaxy, we now know that that planets are very, very common throughout the galaxy. I mean, it is mind-blowing that it took us till the 90s. It's more mind-blowing to me, though, that there's people in 2019 that still don't believe you. But I guess that's that's a different conversation. But at least we'll be in a position, right, to be able to you know, have, as I said, have observations or have the observational capability to say yes or no one way or the other. I think, again, hopefully within my lifetime. So does the heightened reliance on this technology, I mean, in order to get to this level of technology, we're looking at, I think, a few more decades, right? And in which the rest of our lives will undoubtedly become even more overrun with technology. And I think if we Mm -hmm. think that we're dependent on it now, we're only going to be that much more dependent on it 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. Does that worry you at all? I suppose in the context of what we've been talking about, I mean, there's... In that context, yeah. Yeah, there's one angle we can sort of bring in, which is the, when I've mentioned earlier about this thing called space weather. So the sun um, produces... Um, outputs and outputs and emissions of, of what we call charged particles. So very energetic particles that travel through the um, the medium, the, the interplanetary uh, uh, medium between the sun and the earth. And then what these particles do is they interact um, with the um, the earth's magnetic field. Uh, and that produces, for example, the uh, the northern and the southern light, so the aurora borealis and the aurora australis, so these beautiful um, displays that one can see at northern, you know, very northern and southern latitudes. Um, but also what those charged particles do as well is they can actually impact us here on Earth or, our, or more specifically our advanced technological society by doing things like affecting global communications, knocking out communication satellites. Um, some of these charged particles as well can knock out uh, power grids on Earth, so at very northern latitudes, because these particles can get funneled down by the into the atmosphere by the Earth's magnetic field. Um, so these are things that can all have an impact on us here on Earth. And so governments now actually have, uh, um, as for example, our own government here in the UK, which has a thing called the National Risk Register, the risks posed by space weather events are something now that features on that uh, register. Now, I should add as well that before um, um, your listeners shouldn't certainly think, oh my God, is this something that's going to fry us all? (laughs) It isn't, don't worry. But these are things nevertheless that, you know, as we have a society that is ever more reliant on um, advanced technology, global communications. These are things that are affected by um, these events and extreme events, extreme space weather events can have a, you know, can have, you know, a tangible impact in, term, in terms of affecting communication satellites, affecting um, global communications as well. So there are concerted efforts now to do what's called space weather forecasting. So to try and just as we endeavour to make ever more reliable forecasts of weather here on Earth, 
of trying to actually make forecasts of the space weather. And these events ultimately have their origins, as I mentioned earlier, in processes taking place beneath and at the surface and just above the surface of the sun. So the challenge there is to be able to, you know, can we predict when the sun is going to produce these huge emissions and predict whether or not, you know, are they going to intercept us here on Earth and how energetic are they likely to be um, so that we can, you know, make contingency planning for this sort of thing happening. Um, there was a very, very famous event. Um, you know, the, the most famous of these space weather events actually happened um, uh, in the 19th century. It's called the Carrington event, which was an event that at the time was so energetic that it um, had an impact um, on the then the nascent global communication system um, on Earth then telegraphs in terms of frying a lot of um, telegraph systems and wires at the time. Now that's that's an extremely um, extreme event. Um, but nevertheless, these things happen every now and then. So, you know, our ability to be able to predict these events, understand them and predict them is, I think, something that is is quite important. So I agree. It's a nice example of how, you know, the kinds of, you know, the sorts of stuff that pure scientists, pure science, you know, understanding stars might seem like something that's quite, you know, esoteric. Um, you know, there, there is a blue skies aspect to it. But there's also a tangible and important aspect to it as well to us here on Earth. I really do think that we are only a few steps away from chaos at all times. And the reason I think that is just because of what happens in my town anytime there's a gas shortage. Okay, right. People start devolving and uh, they start getting crazy. I can only imagine how long it would take for things to completely devolve if mm-hmm. if we didn't have our electrical systems for long enough. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so I think, you know, the, the kind of work that we're doing does have a, you know, bearing on us being able to, you know, to safeguard um, ultimately some of those global, you know, the, the global communication systems that we have. So changing topics a little bit, I'm just curious, how did you get involved with, NASA at all? How did that come up? Yeah, so that came about through, so up until about the mid-2000s, the, 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 the research that I was doing within then the group that I now lead um, here in Birmingham, we, we were exclusively studying the sun. And the mid-2000s, um, then it was already known. I mean, things were well on the way um, in terms of preparations for the NASA Kepler mission. And the guy who was the PI of the mission, uh, the Kepler mission, a guy called Bill Barucki, um, he realized that in the, the, the method that Kepler was using to find planets, it's called the transit method. Essentially, you find a planet by getting lucky. Um, lucky in the sense that the planet, as it orbits the star, actually passes, is a, its orbit is aligned such that it passes between you, the observer, and the face of the of the visible face of the star. So it passes across the star, blocking some of the light, and you detect a minuscule dimming of the light of the star. Now, what you're doing there is you are finding a planet indirectly by the effect the planet has on the light from the star. And there are various reasons why it's important to be able to understand the star in as much detail as you can. Now, Bill Barucki um, had read about um, you know, the fact that you could do uh, use resonances of the sun 
to understand the sun much better. And he also knew at the time as well that there were the first telescope, ground-based telescope observations were being made of these resonances on other sun-like stars. And so at the time, what he did, he actually contacted a a group of um, astronomers in Denmark because they happened to have at the time a uh, a webpage which was talking about a small satellite that they were trying to um, uh, get together, which would have um, been dedicated to measuring resonances of bright sun-like stars. So he contacted them and started a dialogue with them and said, hey, you know, what can we potentially use these ideas, measure resonances on uh, in some of the stars around which we're going to det- discover planets? You know, if we can do that, that's going to be fantastic for um, being able to characterize the stars and, and also the planets that we find around them. So the, the two people that he spoke to, so um, Jan Christensen-Dalsgaard and Hans Kjelsen, who are the two lead guys still at the group there in, in Aarhus, they realized that this was you know, going to be such a big undertaking um, that they um, thought they had the foresight and um, we, uh, all of the international community that I'm involved with, we thank them very much for doing that. They had the foresight to realize that, heck, you know, this had to be a big international community-wide undertaking. And so what they did is they initiated a big international consortium of people that study stars in this way. So you'd already mentioned at the top of the podcast that this is a field that we call helioseismology when applied to the sun. So helio for the sun seismology, because we're kind of studying, you know, resonances or sun quakes. It's called asteroseismology when applied to other stars. So astero for stars, again, um, seismology, because we're studying resonances or star quakes this time. So they reached out to the rest of the international astroseismology community. How much of a community is that? How, how, how many people? So it's about it's a few, a few hundred scientists. I think it got to, okay. you know, latterly, up to maybe 500 scientists around the world. So you could kind of all know each other. Yeah, and they set up this big consortium. And uh, so I was uh, lucky enough to be chosen to run um, uh, the parts of that consortium, which were... Um, studying stars like the sun and also planet hosting stars as well. And so, uh, and then uh, as well, through that as well, I got involved working quite directly with the the team that were actually running the mission. And what we've done is to actually replicate that consortium for another NASA mission, which was launched just last year called TESS. Uh, TESS is an acronym for, it's called the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite but we're also using tests to study stars as well. And so we've replicated that structure as well. So I'm involved in um, leading that um, consortium, the board that leads that consortium, along with um, Jan and Hans and some other um, colleagues as well, including the um, the lead, uh, the US leads of the test mission as well. So yeah, that's that's how we got involved with these NASA missions. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before. And if you remember, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, 
Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song of the album and takes your questions live on the air. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics. And Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio, so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those who really, really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhanced, which includes everything I already told you about, and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, loan, and so forth. It's over 50 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-one -on -one office hours, sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes on a live video stream, fix it up, and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. If any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills and your audio career, head over to urm.academy slash enhanced to find out more. Let me try to understand something. So you have around 500 people around the world all working on the same thing. Mm -hmm. Kind of, but the yeah. all you know, all in their own at their own universities, at their own space centers, or wherever they are. Is there a, a central directive, um, like some sort of delegation, or is it more that you guys just compile everyone's individual data? How does how how's the work spread out? Where does the cooperation come in? In the case of Kepler, initially. Um, things were organized in a very sort of top-down way. Um, and this was actually, we were very lucky in that um, because we were in a position to be able to, to characterize some of the planet-hosting stars using the seismology, that meant that as a consortium, we got access to what's called proprietary data. So that's a term that means that um, um, sometimes on some space missions, and Kepler was one of them, um, only a restricted number of people can actually have access to the data before they're made completely public for any, you know, any scientist to be able to use. So we were lucky in being able to get early access to data. Um, but one of the um, things that we did in order to be able to do that was to organize the consortium in a very structured way. So, um, but that, that, that turned out to be quite a good thing and that it meant that we had, you know, um, teams of people who were interested in working on particular types of star. And so, and that structure has been replicated in what we've done in TESS. So it means that you have, you know, groups of people who are, um, have a like-minded interest in terms of the types, the different types of stars that they're interested in looking at. And then that work has mainly, you know, been sort of self-organizing in the sense that, um, you know, there's some work where it really, is advantageous for everyone to work together. For example, you know, the, the first papers and the first discoveries that are that are made using the data, it can be really advantageous to work as a big team towards a common goal. And then what tends to happen then as time goes by that there will then be, you know, once you've picked the low-hanging fruit and then the um, the sort of the big papers on the early discoveries. Mm -hmm. What happens then is that people then start to look at things in more detail 
and everyone has particular things that they're interested in. And then things sort of naturally then divide down into sort of smaller teams working on things. But there's also across the consortium as well, the wider um, goal of actually being able to take the very raw data that we get from the satellite and to prepare it in a way that makes it ready for us to analyze and extract science from it. So one of the other really important things of having a big consortium like this is the coordinated activity that goes on around producing things that enable science, enable us to do, everyone to do the science. And so there's been a big coordinated undertaking, particularly in TESS, to um, have, you know, members of a, a team within the consortium that will provide, that will take the very raw data we get from the satellite, um, put it in a, prepare it, massage, well, I was going to say massaging it. Uh, that doesn't, that, that's not quite the right way of describing it, but sort of, you know, preparing it. Prepping it, yeah. That... It, prepping it in a way that is then in just the right form that people need to say, right, this is just what I need to be able to, um, you know, to, to extract the science from it. And that's something that, you know, it's a team of people within the consortium, but they are providing a service for the rest of the, for everyone within the consortium. And that, that's fantastic. So when that data is prepped, just out of curiosity, is it prepped to some, I guess, universal standard that everybody works from? Like, uh, just to put it in really simple production terms, just sending, you know, for instance, everybody wave files at 2448, um, that's, you know, send those to a mixer, prep the files, send them, and they'll know what they're getting if that's what you send them, and it's not some oddball file format they've never heard of, for instance. Just for instance, is is it prepped in a way to where it's one, I guess, generic prep to a universal format, or is it individually done for each team's uh, specifications and needs? So the analogy is very, very similar to that, to what you said. So I think there's a, what the sort of default product that one would produce, which is the standard vanilla prep, um, where everyone knows exactly, you know, the, the different techniques or, or uh, methodologies that have been used to produce the data. Then it's churned out in a, in a standard format. Um, um, and so everyone knows then, you know, the, the various, um, so we actually take, um, the stuff is churned out, um, in, um, multi-column files of data where, you know, you, where one knows what each, you know, there's a standard format, um, one knows what's stored in each of the different columns so that one, when one gets one of these files, you know exactly what's in there. And, and, and importantly as well, you know exactly what was done to produce that file too. So for some of the science work as well, you know, additional work can then be done to maybe layer on and, you know, to add on an additional layer of, pre of preparation if that's needed to produce, you know, a bespoke preparation for a particular science goal. So it might be that a slightly different preparation is needed for a different type of star. Or it could be that on a particular type of star, one needs a bespoke preparation if you're, you know, if, if what you're trying to achieve from the data is slightly different as well. And certainly different communities. I mean, my community, we're interested in preparing the data in such a way that we can easily detect and extract the, um, the resonances of the data. So essentially, it's like, you know, the, the, in terms of visualizing essentially what looks like a waveform. 
that's what we want to extract from the data. But the requirements that we have on doing that are not don't entirely overlap with, for example, the requirements that you would need if you wanted to optimize the data for extracting the signatures of planets, for example. Mm-hmm. So depending upon your community, um, you know, you're going to have likely different preparations of the data that are made widely available to those communities. But even within those communities, there are different, you know, bespoke preparations that you can, that you'll do as well. But it's true to say that the most crucial thing, right, is that everyone understands that there's a, that irrespective of the prep you've used, there's a standard format that everyone understands as well. And also, you know, proper version control and all this kind of thing. So that, you know, as, as the way that we prepare the data evolves. Your version control sounds really intimidating because I know that version control on an album will drive someone nuts. Right, okay. I can only, I can only imagine. Yeah. So how many, just out of interest, how many different, you know, in terms of that kind of thing, how many different things might you have to go through? I mean, for us, it's probably not that many. It all depends really on how complex the project is and how annoying or, you know, I guess on one end of the spectrum, you have annoying. On the other spectrum, you just have visioned and detailed the client is with what they want, right? Some people just want a bunch of stuff because they want a bunch of stuff and it doesn't make it better or worse. And some people truly are visionaries who want every detail exactly the way they want it. And so you end up doing 100 versions, but it's not a bad thing. But sometimes mm-hmm. you end up doing 18 versions and you, you know, you want to shoot yourself. <laughs> but I think that the best organized people I know tend mm-hmm. to make a new version every single time something major gets added. Yeah. So really, it, it's hard to put a, uh, it's hard to say that there's a standard amount because every musical arrangement or production style is unique to that project. But yeah. I've seen lots of, lots of people who do this, you know, once they say you're doing drums, then you're adding guitars, then you have versions for guitars, then the vocals are coming in, so you have all the vocal versions, then et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, on and on and on. Um, yeah. So that no matter what happens, you can always go back. Um, you always know exactly where you're at. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, the, 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 the issues that we have are very, very similar in terms of, that's right, of, you know, we, there will only be, you know, new, um, you know, official releases of data if something significant has been done to change the way that the processing of the, of the raw data is, is how that's made. Makes sense. Yeah, and also, so there's not a, you know, in the lifetime of a mission, there are probably, I don't know, might be of order of maybe, I don't know, 10 to 20 maybe iterations of, the, of, of how the, the data get processed. But also as well, it's very important to be able to, you know, that one keeps a, a record as well of the earlier versions, um, you know, um, so that, you know, sometimes one might discover that a particular change that's been made to benefit one type of analysis might create issues for, for another. And so being able to track back and compare with previous versions is really important. Yeah. On that note, something that happens sometimes is uh, one of the reasons this is good is Sometimes you mix yourself into a corner. For instance, you just you're working in a certain direction, and for some reason, 
you just create a problem that you just can't really get out of without just kind of starting over. Mm-hmm. So going back in time to before you created that problem is usually the the best solution. Is that sort of thing kind of where you just you can't move forward the way it is for what you need. Yeah, I think yeah. I mean, there are uh, you know new new approaches that are being will be developed and tested all the time given the nature of what we're doing in terms of how we process and analyze the data and just the, the nature of research means that you know quite often one will have an idea but may it just hit a dead end um so yeah being able to then work back through um you know if one's trying a, a new way of looking at or looking at the data or approaching how you analyze the data if things look like they're maybe headed up a dead end, at least being able to track back and figure out, well, you know, at what point did things stop getting better or more useful? That's just sounds so insane to me. <laughs> I, I guess it's just because I'm unfamiliar with the field, but I, I, I'm guessing that for you guys, you you know it when you're approaching a dead end, but how do you know? Because you're studying stuff that... You're trying to discover things that you don't already know. So yeah. how do you then know that you're hit a, about to hit a dead end? How do you know that if you didn't just go a little further, mm-hmm. you'd find what you were looking for? I think usually it's the case that you're trying to find, or maybe there's, maybe there's a signature that you can already see there that's in the data, and you're thinking, okay, right, I think this is real, but is there a better way that I can you know, extract that signal? Or tease it out from the data. So at least you've got then the ben- you've got a benchmark for yourself already of already having had, you know, there's something there in the data that maybe your vanilla approach to the analysis has already uncovered. And you're thinking about it a different way of, you know, of teasing out that signal. So at least you know, so at least in that sense, right, you know whether you're doing better or worse compared to what you had before. But you're right in terms of, you know, if you're trying to discover something in you it may be that you're you know you, you for example i don't know trying to discover a whole bunch of resonances on a star that you haven't found before so on the sun you know we know that we we have not detected all its resonances there are some that are just too weak to be seen against the intrinsic background noise that we were talking about earlier in the podcast so there are, you know, there, there, are, there are real scientific gains to be had from actually finding those resonances. Um, and so people are, there's actually been a renewed push actually to try and do that over the last few years in the solar field. So we're thinking, you know, trying out new ways of trying to um, analyze the raw data and actually extract those signals, you know, completely novel ways of doing that. I guess there we, it's more a case of you know of, of us discovering you know maybe try, trying things out with fake data. That's a good way of being able to check then whether or not you're you're up, you know you're hitting a dead end. Something that doesn't work as you know is either works um, no better or maybe even worse than what you already have, or something that you think works much better. That's a good way of being able to you know use that benchmark of you know if I make some fake data with signals in there that are buried in the noise i know they're definitely there because i've made the fake data myself and then you can throw some of your new analysis techniques at it and at those fake data and see whether or not they can actually uncover something 
if they fail to find something, of course, because they're fake data, you've got, you know, it's up to you what you put in those those fake data so you can crank up the amplitude of that tiny signal you're trying to find. And then at least for the new method, analysis methodology you're developing, at least then you've got a handle on, you know, what kind of signal threshold do you need in order for your new technique to find something. You can then compare that new technique with something old, with, with your previous technique, and see whether it does, does any better or not. The fake data, do you know what you're putting in there so you know what you're looking for fake data-wise? Or is it something along the lines of someone on the team or the computer just puts some fake data in there, but you don't know what the fake data is, you just know you're going to come across some fake data at some point, and so you have to be able to determine if you do come across it, whether or not it it was the real thing or what was inserted. Mm. Or do you know what you're inserting? That's a great question. Um, so sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. So um, maybe if you're just playing around with developing, you know, the stages of developing something yourself, then you'll probably make, make your own fake data so you know exactly what you're putting in there and you can then, you know, test test the analysis that you're doing. The, the real acid test of, you know, a one's ability to be able to, you know, dig out, weak, you know, tiny, tiny signals from noise is doing the other thing you suggested there, where it's someone else that makes the data. And you then are doing that exercise blind. You don't know, you're given some data, you don't even know whether or not someone has put fake signal in there, they might not have done, they might have done. You don't know what the na- necessarily the nature of the signal is, although you know that the person doing it has obviously, you know, is trying to make it look as, as realistic as possible. So you've got some prior knowledge, you know, some expectation of what it is you're looking for. And those kinds of tests are really, really important. This was actually done by the, it's something that we've done, but they're called hare and, hare and hounds exercises. Uh, so the hare is the, the uh, so the hounds are chasing the hares. So the idea there is that the, um, the hounds are the people who are actually then trying to dig out the signal. And it's, that, that's then what we call a, you know, a, com- a completely blind, um, uh, that's a blind exercise where um, the people who are trying to extract the signal don't know what's been put in. Um, you can also do um, double blind exercises. So this is where there will be a set of people who are making the fake data but they will maybe they'll, they'll maybe they could maybe set up a computer program or get someone completely you know who isn't involved in the collaboration to actually make the choices for them so there, there are constrained choices over what should go in the data but the people who've actually been the people who've actually set up the you know the code that makes the fake data aren't necessarily the ones that actually make that choice so even they don't know what's gone into the into the, the data, even though they know they've developed the tools to make the data. You see what I mean? Yeah. Um, and that is a real, you know, that's a real stern test in your community. So that kind of thing was done um, by the, so the gravitational wave communities, you know, the gravitational waves got discovered. This is a huge big deal um, yeah, just a few really years was. ago. And there they're trying to tease out and extract tiny, tiny signals from the data and they did these kind of double-blind exercises where these huge communities would be analyzing data. And also, they wouldn't even know for some of these exercises whether or not they were analyzing real data or fake data. 
right? So that that really is the answer there. You're getting into human psychology right now around, you know... It's so important. People make different choices around what they do if they know what they've been given is fake versus, you know, the, there's the possibility they've been given something that's real. That if they find something, it may be the first real detection. And is that, you know, the knowledge that it might be, you know, real might change the way you approach the analysis, how circumspect or careful you are and all those kinds of things. So, yes, it's a great question. There's all that we sort of gets into then the psychology of how a big collaboration approaches doing its analysis and verifying, you know, um, the results it finds. Well, that's something... We have to deal with all the time, and I figure that for you guys, I know that you're supposed to approach the data in a non-biased way and just react to the data as it is. But you're a human; you're mm-hmm. going to have yeah. biases. Yes, exactly. I'm wondering if you come across this because actually, I've had to do this, and this is a common thing because a lot of people in music have biases about stuff that is just really, really dumb. Like, what a certain type of guitar amplifier is, uh, whether it's a tube amp or a digital amp or, you know, dumb stuff. Mm-hmm. And they think that, and they think that they can spot the difference. And they get, people will slow down productions and grind them to a halt over dumb things like that. And one of the best ways to get them to just stop is to, Give them a blind A B. Um, let them yeah. pick what they like better, and oftentimes they'll pick. They'll think that what they're picking is what they were biased towards, and they're wrong. And then once they realize that they were wrong, they don't bother you about it anymore. I'm wondering if you have any situations, or you've encountered situations, or maybe this is just really, really rare in your community, where um, where sometimes people want it to be something and the data says that it's something else but they have a real hard time letting it go because they you know they're human they want it so bad yeah I mean I think that, that it, it is that thing of around you know if you are expectations over what you might find in the data uh, that may be based on for good reason on other theories or other observations that have been made. Um, but a you know a good scientist, and this means the vast, vast, vast majority of you know scientists. You will, you've got to park that prior expectation, or at least use that in the right way. It's prior knowledge, right? Your you know your expectation of what it is that you're you know not only searching for, but what you think that signal might look like, and what it tells you. Um, your ability to make a judgment about that and interpret it and draw conclusions is based, of course, on your experience, your expertise, and that's prior knowledge. So I think the crucial thing is using that prior knowledge in the right way, not in a way that is going to just blind you to, you know, say, well, this was my prior knowledge and expectation, and that it's going to completely blind you to, you know, really what the data are telling you, but to use it in a way that is informative but doesn't bias you if the data are telling you something entirely, entirely different. And I think that is a, you know, that's a really important skill of being a good scientist is using that prior knowledge and that expectation of what you're going to find in the, in the right way. Um, because, you know, the, the most important 
discoveries, you know, discoveries by their very nature, right, are usually of things that one wasn't expecting, serendipitous discoveries. I mean, the... Happy accidents. Exactly. I mean, the, the, when I was talking earlier about uh, mentor, my mentor and, and colleague, George, um, George Isaac, who, you know, I was talking about how him wanting to test out his instrument um, on the sun to find out the noise floor level. This discovery that the sun was pulsing in and out was resonating happened completely by accident. And so that was a great example there of a of exactly a, a scientific discovery by accident where one as a good scientist has to say, whoa, this is not what we were expecting to see at all. But to then have the insight and the foresight to realize what it is you're actually seeing and then also to recognize the significance of that as well. And I think, you know, usually the the most exciting discoveries, there are some discoveries that will be made where people are, you know, are hoping, I mean, like the gravitational wave, discovery of gravitational waves, the signatures there of what was found were, you know, matched with expectation and theory. But that's such a, I mean, that's just a game-breaking discovery, but one that, you know, matched with expectation. But then there are the other discoveries that are made which are, made completely by accident where, you know, you have to have the insight to realize the significance of what you've discovered. And then that can open up a completely new field of, you know, of endeavor, which is which is what happened in the case of, of resonating stars like the sun. Sounds like there's an artistic element to it. I mean, you are just interpreting what you're being given, so it's not like you're creating it, but the ability to understand that what you're seeing, you know, if it's something that you weren't expecting, that you've never seen before, yet you can understand what it is that you're seeing, plus infer its significance, there's something artistic to that. It's not just analytical. No, I agree. I think science is a, it is a very creative process. Um, and, you know, uh, one has to, you know, there's an element of finding the right inspiration. Quite often, you know, one can have a create. You know, it's having that insight or that you know light bulb moment, which I'm sure you know will be common to people working in the with um, you know purely creative endeavors in art, um, music, and so forth. But I think as well, there are quite there are a lot of common features there as well. I think. I mean, certainly one of the things actually on that front that I'm very interested in is um, um, how you know. The, the commonalities and differences that there are between artistic practice and scientific practice. And um, so I do quite a lot of work with artists who um, have different practice ranging from uh, a sound sound artist uh, through to dancers, uh, people who sculpt, um, all sorts of different endeavours. So we do art art science collaboration um, in that, but also those collaborations we're also interested in trying to understand how we can actually influence each other's practice i mean not through the obvious thing of you know for example the sound artist i work with she has taken the sound data that we have on stars and incorporated that into the her practice and the pieces she produces but we're also interested as well in not just that's kind of the low-hanging fruit i guess exactly exactly but also how can we actually from the way that she approaches her practice and what she does with her work can she influence how i approach doing my science and also vice versa and so this is something that we're sort of you know trying to um investigate with artists from different you know 
different areas. And quite often it can be much more easy to show how the maybe the scientist influences the artist, showing the, the influence in the opposite direction is a bit harder. But I think that goes more to issues around, you know, how you approach, you know, doing a particular piece of work, how you structure it, how you break it down into its component parts, how you approach team working, you know, the approaches that are used by artists who maybe work in teams rather than on their own. That, I think, can provide interesting insights to how, you know, teams of scientists can actually break down and approach their work as well. I'm curious about those light bulb moments because I know that that's always been something that I go for. You know, I'm trying to get to those moments no matter what I'm doing, whether it was when I was a guitar player or a producer or um, creating this school or whatever it is mm-hmm. I'm doing. I've always tried to get to those light bulb moments, but I discovered that you can't really predict them. I mean, you can kind of set the stage. You can kind of set the stage for them, but you can't predict them. And the best creative people I know are people who are just prolific. And it doesn't mean that their work is prolifically good. It just means that they are prolific in their output. And so they they set the stage for the light bulb to turn on more often. And mm-hmm. so they end up having a, a greater quantity of great work just because they're sitting down to do the work more often, as opposed to some people I've known who are off the charts in terms of ability and talent, but were maybe kind of lazy or just waiting for inspiration. And then, you know, they sometimes they would do really great work, but other times, you know, they'd be inspired by something dumb and put out something bad. And because they weren't prolific, uh, it would really hurt their progress. I'm wondering... Do you know where this inspiration comes from for you, or is it a similar thing where you just do the work and it shows up when it wants to, the inspiration that is? I think it's very like that. I think you make a great point there that you can, you know, quite often the best ideas will come out of, seemingly come out of nowhere. But if you think about it a bit more, they, they sort of don't in the sense that you've already loaded the dice in your favor. Yes. By putting in the groundwork there. So you put yourself in a position to be able to have those moments. Um, And, you know, so you've got that underpinning. And quite often I I actually find that I, you know, when when I have the occasional um, light bulb moment, they don't happen very often, but when they do, um, quite often for me it's actually my walk to work, actually my walk in the morning down to the local train station. And that gives me a chance just to, something about walking, <laughs> walking and thinking at the same time and mulling over, you know, uh, on a, uh, you know, trying to tackle a particular research challenge or a particular problem. But that, for me, provides a great time to be able to just kind of mull over things in my head in a very kind of free-ranging way. And quite often then I'll find, so, you know, you're building on the foundations of the work that you've been putting in on that. But that often provides the right environment for me, for that idea to suddenly kind of seemingly pop out of nowhere, just from this kind of free form thinking and just mulling things over. And then usually approaches to, you know, it might not be, you know, solving a problem, but it could be the realization of, ah, right, okay, maybe I should try this or maybe I should try something else. And then that will often lead to uh, lead to the solution to the problem. So it's not always necessarily, you know, the light bulb moment that gives you, ah, that's the solution. It's sometimes as well light bulb moments that where you realize that 
you know, the, the approach that will actually then give you the solution to the problem as well. It's usually what they are for me too. It's a light bulb that says illuminates the idea of why don't we try it this way and see what happens. Yeah. And it's a way I didn't think of before and it either works or it doesn't, yeah. which is the, the fun part. So when you are taking these walks, do you record your ideas at all or you just remember them by the time you arrive? I don't. I usually remember them when I, yeah, so usually um, if I start thinking about a specific thing, usually then if, 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 I've, if it's given me an idea or something that I think, yeah, I should do that, I'll usually then when I get into work, will then usually make a note of it. I mean, sometimes it can be something I can action right away. So it could be, you know, emailing a colleague um, to say, right, okay, this is what I think we should do. And actually, you know, suggesting that they have they have a go at doing that. If it's something that maybe needs a little bit, bit more thought or something like that, then I'll usually make a, a note of it, you know, and, and I actually have, you know, several, um, you know, for different projects or different things I'm working on then I'll have a, um, you know, a sort of an ongoing records for each of those different areas and I'll just make a note in there for myself to maybe come back to, to, to think about it. Um, I have thought, yeah, previously about that, about recording stuff also as well. Um, this doesn't happen often to me, but I know some other colleagues who, uh, if when they go to bed at night, they're sort of mulling things over and might wake up in the middle of the night and have a, you know, and be thinking about something and, I know some colleagues will have deliberately have a pen and paper, um, you know, on their bedside table, so that when they wake up, they'll make a note of whatever it was, and they'll find then that that enables them then to, you know, gets it out. They go back to sleep, and then they can wake up in the morning and have a look and see whether or not it's a good idea or a bad one. Um, I've never had that issue myself in terms of you know things keeping me awake at night like that. But, I'm jealous, <laughs> <laughs> but I know for some colleagues that um, you know that that does work well for them, and, and sometimes it can be you know a good way for them to that they will actually wake up in the morning and think, oh yeah, that's a pretty good idea. Or other other times they'll just wake up in the morning and think, okay, maybe not. <laughs> but at least it served its purpose, the, the other purpose as well, of getting it out of their system so they can get a good night's sleep. Well, I find that sometimes the bad ideas, you have to get them out of the way to clear the path for the good ideas sometimes. Yeah, that's true. I feel like sometimes they are just, uh, it's more of a maintenance thing that yes. you get them out so that they're no longer taking up brain ram yeah. so you can focus on the task at hand. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I... I, I Usually fine with those that will come out maybe in certainly for research stuff I'm doing. If I have a you know time to work on a particular thing, then usually if I have a bit of time to actually sit down and think properly about something, you know, if it's an idea I've jotted down, if I then have time to think it through, usually it'll usually be obvious if there's something that's just a really bad idea, and then you know if you have a chance to have a good you know 10, 15 minute think about it, you can usually then put it in the in the no pile. But at least, as you say, you know, you've, you've, you've ruled it out. And also as well, then it's, you know, there's no need then to devote any more, any more brain time to thinking about that issue. It's gone. And then you can concentrate on other things. So does it bother you at all that you're not going to get to see the conclusion of this work or where this work is at in 300 years? I'm just wondering if that at all messes with your motivation. Because I think it's pretty normal for people to seek conclusions or to seek, I guess, a certain level, like if you're 
I say, say in the military, you there are ranks. Mm-hmm. I mean, eventually you hit retirement age, but there are certain ranks, and even though obviously the military goes on, there's a structure. There's a structure that you know, or if you're in sports, you age out, for instance. Um, yeah. I know that in music, uh, music just goes on and on and on and on, but um, but you finish you finish albums, and then there's another album, and then you finish that album. I feel like with this, you're doing work uh, for people 100 years from now to keep working on. Mm, um, yeah. Very, very directly, actually. Yeah. It's, not like, it's not like Gustav Mahler wrote a symphony, and so now Hans Zimmer is writing a soundtrack, and Hans Zimmer is finishing Gustav Mahler's work. It's not that. <laughs> it's just it's more that uh, someone 100 years from now might actually be finishing your work. Does that bother you at all, or do you find that exciting? Or? That's an interesting question. I think probably more more exciting, and also as well that if there's something, I think it's more. I guess the sense of achievement that if you've done something that helps to, you know, adds its own little, you know, is I think it's helping to solve just a little, even a little piece of the puzzle around stars and exoplanets. That that there's that sense of achievement in doing that. But also as well, if you're doing some, if you've done something as well that lays the foundation or the, the the bedrock of someone else as well, being able to take that and push that on to make you know you know make further much more exciting discoveries. If you've done your bit to help lay the foundations for 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 that, I think that's hugely satisfying. So I think you know if this if there are you know people now and in the future who are doing research that builds if only in a some small way on some of the stuff that i've done um i sort of see that as a you know as, as a huge compliment if you like so you know even though there you know there are clearly things that will in terms of discoveries that will be made you know in what i'm no longer here that would be great to see i i like to think more that you know on, on the or the 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 compliment that it will be that if you know even if I play just a tiny 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 role in terms of setting in train what's done there that, that that's that's more than good enough for me I'm glad to hear that otherwise it sounds like it would be torture yes <laughs> absolutely <laughs> one more question I know you've got to run this is we have a few questions from listeners but I'll just ask one because I know you have the heart out uh, this is from Russ Mueller and it's uh, one of the most defining advances of modern music is autotune and that came from the application of seismic analysis algorithms to the human voice mm-hmm. are there analytical methods and tools that you use in your work which you think could creatively be applied to audio in a non-research capacity to produce new kinds of sounds whoa that's a very good question. Um, I guess the um, so when we do turn our so we can take our data and turn it back into sound, and it's certainly true to say that the there are lots of different ways of sonifying. I mean, you, you will know this much more than I, and I, when I've discussed this as well with artists who use sonification as well. Um, there are, uh, you know, many subtleties and many different ways of doing that. Um, so we often will, will, will use the sonification approach very much for uh, the purposes of outreach or the kind of creative stuff that I do with artists as well. 
terms of the, those kinds of algorithms and um, you know the the the, um, yeah, the auto tuning thing and sort of analogy with what we do in terms of our science. I guess a lot of the stuff. I guess we, we're doing stuff with waveforms, and we're trying to measure the the properties of those waveforms. The closest analogy I think I can think of is that sometimes you know we might be dealing with sometimes with waveforms that aren't exactly periodic or are or whose properties maybe change over time and it can be then easier to actually detect and understand and extract the information from those waveforms by actually deliberately distorting them but distorting them in a way that makes them easier to detect so it may be distorting the waveform to make it more periodic for example is that because it brings more of it out yeah essentially it just makes it easier you know if you're looking for if you imagine you know say you've got a, a really coherent signal and that coherent signal say it's period or wave the waveform doesn't change over time then that's really easy to find but if you have a periodic signal that where maybe the the waveform is changing over time perhaps the period is changing in time and you use the analysis that you would use to extract a, a, a completely coherent waveform that isn't changing over time. If you've got a signal where that is changing, then it will smear out the signal, right? And so there are tricks you can use to actually, for example, you know, most of the data that we have are collected as a function of time. So if you have a waveform that's changing in time, you could, uh, and you, you have some idea of how it might be changing then one approach would be to deliberately distort the time axis to make it look like it was periodic. Um, there are some signals that we have in the frequency domain in stars that are not evenly spaced in frequency um, or maybe evenly spaced in period. And you can actually distort the, the natural axis that you're using to look at that signal, be it time or frequency, again, to make things look more regular so it's easier to extract the signal. So that's a trick that you know people will use um, so that we can actually extract the signal. Um, but there obviously we're interested in extracting what's really there. So there, you know, if we extract something periodic with our distorted distorted axis, we're actually using the information on um, uh, the information that we have in terms of how we had to distort the signal is then important scientific information for us as well. So oh yeah, you don't want to be confusing the distortion for the information. Yeah. So um, you know, but if if you know that, you know, by distorting the time axis in a particular way, that that brings out the signal much more clearly, then the way that you've distorted the time axis then gives you information on what that underlying signal is. So it's a way, if you like, to unpack an irregular signal that you do have in the data. Um, so, so sometimes that sort of approach does get used in, in my area. That's a great answer because um, distortion harmonics are used quite often for that very same purpose in mixing. Okay. You know, there will be certain elements at times that just aren't coming through. Maybe the mix is too dense. Maybe, maybe there's just something in the same. I get that's it's just not arranged that well, and so it's being swallowed up by something in the same range. Or there's any number of reasons, but sometimes just adding a subtle amount of distortion will just help something pop through. Yeah. But you need to be careful and not add too much because then. You're just adding noise, and so exactly. you have to have just the right amount. But yeah, yeah 
it works. It's great. So great answer. Well, Bill Chaplin, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. It's been enlightening to speak to you, to say the least. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. This episode of the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast was brought to you by Sonarworks. Sonarworks is on a mission to ensure everybody hears music the way it was meant to be across all devices. Visit sonarworks.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and subscribe today. <laughs>